Welcome to the Fellowship of Christlike Growers podcast. We believe that agriculture is stronger when we help and support each other through the challenges and decisions we face as farmers. Our farmer sharing calls provide an opportunity to share and learn from each other's knowledge and experiences regarding the agronomy issues that matter most to our farms. All right. Well, listen, uh, everybody, thank you so much for joining in tonight. Uh, This farmer sharing call has turned into quite a hit, and uh, we love sharing, and we make this available for just what it is, is to share information to fellow growers. And uh, we've got tonight uh, guest speaker, Jeremy Swanson from, uh, he's with Agronomy Rx, but he had a a lot of years prior with New Co-op in Iowa. And uh, Jeremy's gonna speak uh, initially on nitrogen and the different forms of nitrogen. We felt that was a topic that is always of interest to growers and something that sometimes is misunderstood. And we wanted to bring it to you from an independent perspective. We're not trying to sell you nitrogen uh, and we want know that it's a necessary requirement in our agronomy programs, but we also want to learn if there's ways that we can use it better to a better advantage, certainly, and uh, with all the other tools that are in our toolbox. But we have a breath tonight that is amazing. This is our best call yet uh, from here in South Florida, all the way to Canada, all the way to California, all through the Midwest. Uh, you know, so this is wonderful and really appreciate everyone getting on board. And uh, so I'm going to go ahead and let Jeremy run with this. Uh, and then this will be wide open after uh, the initial uh, presentation by Jeremy on nitrogen. Please, in you know, jump in after he finishes and uh, questions or comments. And we welcome, this is meant for everyone to share uh, information. So there's no agenda, no format uh, other than just the start will be Jeremy presenting on nitrogen. So Jeremy Swanson, here we go. All right, thanks, George. Well, I yeah, as George said, we'll we'll walk through some stuff here on nitrogen, and I am by no means an expert. Um, but what I'm going to share today was something I put together um, shortly after we met George, and um, I started asking questions about how his products were working, and. Um, I ended up with with this PowerPoint set that I'm going to go through, and we're, we're not going to show it here today, but um, if you want to see those slides, um, I do have them posted on our website at agronomyrx.com um, under the video links. Um, I recorded some commentary and stuff over it, so um, if you want to go back and review that at some point, uh, you sure can, but um, I, I guess my goal is just to, just to kind of tee up some things around um, nitrogen, um, a lot of them I, I are probably review for a lot of people, but there's a there's a lot of sharp brains on this call here today as well, and so let's uh, I'll just kind of tee it up and and see where it goes, I guess. So, so I guess starting with um, the forms of nitrogen and and what do we use in the fields and things and what what's plant available, what's not plant available, and I guess the first one I'm going to start with is urea, and Getting into the chemistry of that just slightly, the, the chemical form of that is CONH22. And so there's a carbon atom in there, oxygen, and then 
uh, nitrogen and two hydrogens. Urea in and of itself is not plant available. It needs to go through a conversion process um, before it can become plant available. Then we'll look at ammonia, which is NH3. Uh, most people are pretty well familiar with that if, if they put anhydrous on before. Um, there again, NH3 on its own is not plant available and needs to go through a conversion process. Ammonium, which is NH4, that is plant available on its own. It's a very stable compound. From there, we, a lot of us know that ammonium will convert to nitrite, which is NO2. And my understanding is, is that is plant available, but it, it, you got to be very careful with it. Um, and what I studied on that, I, there's not a lot of information on it uh, to begin with and maybe some discrepancies as to whether it is or isn't. Maybe somebody on this call can answer that with certainty, but um, it, nonetheless, it doesn't stay in that form very long. And, and so we don't really give it much credit um, anyway. And then the last one is nitrate. That's the one that gets the, probably the most publicity because it's the leachable one. Um, it is plant available, but uh, due to the fact that it's leachable, um, we, we gotta be very careful with it. So then looking at products and what products do we use and, and what, so which of those forms are available in those products. Uh, so you got uh, urea, um, common one around here is a 4600. Um, there again, that urea has got to go through a conversion process before the plant can use it. Anhydrous, which is the NH3 form, like we mentioned a minute ago. And then UAN 32%. Uh, which is urea, ammonium, nitrate. And this is the one that I, I guess I'm probably a little bit ashamed of that I had never spent the time um, really diving into the different pieces of that. We just, a lot of times we just looked at 32 as nitrogen and nitrogen is nitrogen and that's that. And, you know, there's commercial stabilizers out there to put with it. So we would, we would throw a stabilizer with it and think we're just all, hunky-dory and everything's good to go and and that was it but as as you dive into UAN um, there's three components to that the urea ammonium and the nitrate and I, I think there's depending on where you're at there's there's maybe slightly different variations of the percentages but um, what I found to be fairly common was 50 percent of it is in the urea form so of the nitrogen you're getting in 32%, 50% of it is in the urea form. All right. 25% is in the ammonium form. And 25% is in the nitrate form. So as we process that for a minute and think about the stabilizers that are out there today and, and what we use to help try to manage that, um, the first one comes to mind is, is something like agrotane, um, which is a urease enzyme inhibitor. So a product like agrotane is going to focus more on the urea component and try to protect it from breaking down um, into the ammonia form and hence losing it if it would gas off. 
Then we can look at nitrification inhibitors, um, something like an NSERV or an instinct that are going to try and protect the ammonium form of the end, try to keep the bacteria from feeding on the ammonium form. And then we can look at maybe newer to the market is the carbon-based nitrogen stabilizers like uh, what George has with cetane. So then, so then I, I like pictures. Um, I do a lot better with pictures than words. So I started drawing myself out pictures of these chemical compounds and, and, and trying to figure out how all this works. And what, what I was finding was that the urea compound, as it reacts with moisture, it then separates out, um, reconfigures the, the atoms in there, and you end up with two ammonia um, particles and carbon dioxide. And so, Humidity in the air is, is enough to initiate this process. Hence, uh, take a, a tank of 32% and you can't stick your head in it. I, I think any of us that have heard George talk and, and tell his story is, is we talk, he talks about how he came across cetane and somebody stuck their head in a tank of 32% and it should knock you backwards because of the ammonia smell. Well, there's not ammonia in there, there's urea in there. So why do you get the ammonia smell? Well, moisture in the air is enough to initiate that reaction and hence some of that nitrogen is gassing off right in the tank. So how do we, how do we protect against that? Well, ammonia needs a hydrogen ion to convert, that we need to get it into the ammonium, ammonium form which is NH4, and we need to get it there fast. Well, as soon as we can get it to the soil, if the soil's got a pH less than seven, there's hydrogen available in the soil. And so we can get that stabilized into the ammonium form fairly quickly. But when we're in the tank, we don't have that. So we can take a product like cetane that's got hydrogen available, put it right in the tank, and we can get that ammonia to convert to ammonium right away. Hence the reason after you dump some in the tank, you can stick your head in the tank and it doesn't knock you backwards. I know, because I've tried. Not that I didn't trust you, George, but I had to try. <laughs> so, so that's that piece of it. So now we've got the urea converted into ammonium. It's now stable. Now we can move on to the next step. So then the ammonium likes to convert through bacteria. The nitrous ammonis bacteria will break down the ammonium, convert it into nitrite. Then the nitrobacter bacteria will feed on the nitrite and convert it into nitrate. This is where it changes from a, a chemical reaction to a biological reaction. And at that point, the, the nitrosomonas bacteria and the nitrobacter, as far as that goes, are aerobic bacteria that, that need oxygen um, to survive. 
And so when I look at a product like cetane that has available oxygen there, we then provide the oxygen to bolster the bacteria, which are going to bolster all the bacteria, aerobic bacteria. I mean, it's not focused on, on just those, but in terms of the nitrogen process, we're providing that oxygen for them. So to help with that conversion process into nitrate. Again, plant available. So then the last piece of what's left is, okay, how do, how do we really hold all this um, in the short term? And that's where the carbon comes into play in that carbon, pure carbon has a CEC of over 700. So when we look at our soils, um, many of us have maybe looked at the CEC on our soil tests. Um, to our area in North Central Iowa, we've, most of ours are probably between 20 and 40. Um, sometimes we can get down to maybe 15 or 10, um, but we don't get much lower than that. Other parts of the country um, could get there. So as we think about that, say we take a CEC of 20, and with the old adage being take your CEC times 10, and that gives you an idea of the nitrogen holding capacity of your soil. So if we got a CEC of 20, take it times 10, that would say we could hold 200 pounds of nitrogen. But since nitrogen isn't all the same, our CEC, our CEC of our soil is all negative holding sites, negative electrical charges. So all that it can hold is going to be positive electrical charges. Well, the forms of end that we've talked about, ammonium is really the only one with a positive electrical charge, and hence that's the form it can hold. My understanding of this CEC thing is that there, there are a handful of positive electrical charges in the soil, not very many, uh, very few, and hence we don't really give any credit to it, but there are a few. So I guess in my brain, as I take a 20 CEC soil and ramp it up to 700 CEC with pure carbon, the amount of positive charges is going to go up as well. And so now we've got the carbon molecule that can hold both positive charges to hold the ammonium and negative charges to be able to hold some nitrate. So that's, that's kind of where the carbon's a, a, a neat piece there when we deal with, deal with pure carbon. So I guess with, with that being said, um, we don't have much dry urea that go on in our area. Um, and, and what we do, it's, it's mostly through large retailers that um, aren't willing to, to work with us on, on using cetane on the urea. So we don't have much experience with it on urea, but 32% um, we have used for several years now. But when I, when I look at, at nitrogen stabilizing and, and kind of break the different stabilizers down to the forms of nitrogen and, and these conversion processes, um, 
I, I think what what cetane does and to protect against the different ways we can lose it um, through gassing off as ammonia through leaching down to the profile um, it, it it protects against all of them and to, to be able to stabilize that ammonia in the tank is is a is a pretty amazing feat to me and and so simple in its concept at the same time but um with that being said that's that's pretty short and sweet that's that's kind of the nuts and bolts of what i got is there questions or discussion at, at this point Well, thank you, Jeremy. I appreciate uh, you taking the time and effort to share that tonight. Um, it certainly is complicated and a lot of chemistry and a lot of things involved. And of course, you know, we typically don't get into all that at the farming level. Um, you know, traditionally, historically, we've just uh, put on whatever they told us at the co-op or our fertilizer supplier to put on, and that's what we put on. But we certainly know that today with a lot more information that we have that we didn't have maybe available 10, 20, 30 years ago. And I think uh, Larry Ekoff uh, can speak to that of his many, many years at New Co-op and uh, the role he had there, you know, that, uh, and Larry, if you'd like to share, please uh, chime in uh, because I know, you know, that predominantly is where a lot of our Midwest uh, inputs on the NPK side have come from is from very large co-ops. My discussion and our question of this is what's everybody's preferred form of nitrogen? What, what's everybody's preference to put out there and, um, and, and why? I'll go first. I, uh, I like putting out anhydrous ammonia and I've uh, cut back my anhydrous ammonia. Um, I used to put on about 185 pounds and I cut it back uh, about to about 160 pounds. And then I, my favorite form of top dressing, I'm, I think wide drops and all that'd be good, but logistically, and I have a self-propelled sprayer, so I don't have wide drops on it. Uh, so I have uh, a, I, my favorite thing is AMS on top because you get the sulfur. And I feel like sulfur um, is, one, that's one of my favorite things. And I feel like it actually benefits my beans the next year when that corn stover breaks down. And I, I mean, my bean yields, I have some comparisons over the years um, of one of my other farms that doesn't uh, do that. I share crop with my uncle some and he doesn't do that. And you can tell a difference. Um, and that's really been the only thing. And then going off that seat, uh, and I, uh, to get my nitrogen up a little higher, put on 100 pounds of ammonium sulfate. And then I put on enough uh, urea to make up the difference. And we used cetane this past year. And I'm going to use it again this next year because I really feel like, like my corn stayed greener than anybody else's around. And I put on fungicide and most everybody else put on fungicide, but they didn't top dress their corn. So there is a difference there that would help. But um, I felt like my 
corn steak greener this time. Uh, like it was a, a brown ear and a green stock. And I, they're figuring up, my local dealer's figuring up uh, my uh, nitrogen use. But I kind of figured it up, and that's kind of tricky to figure out because there's so many variables. But I feel like I got like a 0.8, uh, you know, raised a bushel of corn on 0.8 pounds of nitrogen. And, um, but I feel like this time that uh, my corn was greener than normal. And the only other difference that was other than normal was the cetane in it. Um, I felt like maybe it held the nitrogen there better. Now, I don't know if we have a real, we were dry and I had the biggest crop I've ever had this year. And, um, you know, I, I, Missouri state average might be somewhere in the 140 range. And uh, my corn, I farm 1500 acres of corn and my corn over every single acre of my entire farm uh, was 237. And ever I have two different planters and I do have a variable rate. I did get a new planter, high speed planter this year. And um, everything I planted with my planter compared to my uncle with his planter, it was brand new too. And uh, everything I planted, my average over every single acre of everything I, now this is splitting the crop, the farm in half and what that other planter planted and what mine planted, everything I planted averaged 248 over every single acre. And, you know, I'm very cautious on how much I spend on my crop. I try not to do anything unless I think there's a return on investment. And I know we're talking about cetane here too, but I do like to replenish I get like getting my, I, I like how it mixes in the tank. I like how it gets the pH down where I need to. Um, it's safe, simple to use. Um, there's really nothing that I know of that is better than it. But anyway, that's my few cents. Huh. Well, thanks, Richard. I appreciate you saying that. Uh, and for everyone, just so you know, Richard is in Missouri. So um, give you kind of just a ballpark area where he's farms and he's farmed there a long time. Uh, Richard's a very successful farmer. Richard, your urea, was that a liquid form or a dry form that you treated? Dry, it was dry. It was mixed in with the, um, um, the ammonium sulfate. So the ammonium sulfate is 21 pounds of nitrogen, 24 pounds of sulfur. Um, and 21 pounds, I was needing more nitrogen than that. So they blended um, urea in, maybe, I think it maybe got me up to like 45 or 50 pounds, 45 or 50 pounds of ammonium or of nitrogen. So I had 24 pounds of sulfur and around 50 pounds of nitrogen and it was all dry. And with you treating the dry with the with the cetane, did that reduce the burn on the leaves? Because if uh, normally wouldn't that do a, a, a burn putting a dry spread over the top? It does. And it honestly, it did um, because I was driving around afterwards and I thought, well, maybe that it didn't burn it as bad because of the humidity um, and other things um, like it did in the past but um, it did not, you could see where it had had, it was spread on there a little bit, but I don't know, uh, I mean, it, it didn't burn it as bad this year. It'd be interesting to see next year if it burns it, but I put it on whenever um, it was probably like V5 
um, just because it was dry, the, the co-op that was doing it, um, it was a good time to do it for them. And generally I wait longer, but I really, I've burnt that ear leaf pretty bad sometimes. And it did like, it's didn't hurt the yield at all. I don't like seeing that. And so my goal is to try to do it prior to that, um, like V8. Uh, I try not to, I try to keep that um, ear leaf as clean as possible and protect it as much as I can. I don't know how many guys out there would like to hear it, but to lead off your first question, Jason, as far as what forms people like to use, but how about uh, Jeremy, if you went into the fact of, um, you know, when to use it as far as vegetative, reproductive, uh, overuse, and, and some, something like that. Yeah. Can you guys still hear me? Yeah, we got you, Jeremy. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, when, when to use the forms of nitrogen. So I, I like to use nitrate early. Um, nitrate is, I think, better for the vegetative growth. Um, so, so if you want to use something like 32 early that has a nitrate in it, that's, that's fine. But then later in the season, the plant needs more of the ammonium form of N. And so using things like 32 later in the season may not be as, be as wise. Um, I'm guilty, I've done it, but um, looking, to, looking to change that uh, going forward. So maybe starting to use the things like a AMS, uh, urea, um, ATS, if you're wide dropping, uh, maybe use more ATS later, um, but leave the, the nitrate form for early in the season and go more ammonium late. Um, overuse. Oh, that's a, that's a good one. Um, well, I, I, I think, I think it was just mentioned a minute ago, starting to look at nitrogen use efficiency. And we, we pulled some data out of our system here, here a month or so ago. And, um, we had some guys running in the 0 0.7, 0 0.8. Larry, correct me if, if it was lower than that. Um, but I think we were in that range and we were, we were running 100, 160 pounds of, of total N program versus comparing to 200 pounds of uh, total N. And it was the 200 pounds of N was not putting on yield uh, to pay for it. Um, and then we were starting to flirt up around 0.9 or one maybe um, on that use efficiency. So I, I think looking at that nitrogen use efficiency number and and keep trying to work your way down as as you can. But I, right now at 150, 160 in, in, in our area where we've got 20 to 30 CEC soils, um, organic matters in the three to four percent range, because I, I think th those two numbers play into that as well. I you know if you if you got an organic matter a one percent. Um, Maybe the number is still the same, maybe it's not, but you're probably going to have to spoon feed more than um, someone who's got five or six percent and or five or six percent organic matter. So um, the, the CEC and organic matter number play into that total end number big time, big time. 
George, can you use um, cetane on ammonium nitrate dry? Uh, yes, sir. Yes, that, that actually, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of people doing that, uh, Richard, but um, we have a, a new group over in Illinois that's two years ago adopted cetane for their urea, and they actually make a blend. Uh, they actually choose to use uh, potassium sulfate instead of potassium chloride. They feel that the potassium sulfate is not as harmful to the soil biologicals as the potassium chlorides are, but they make a dry blend with their uh, urea and they coat it with the cetane. They use one gallon per ton and they mix in their uh, potassium sulfate. It makes a beautiful blend. And what they found out this year after spreading, uh, uh, you know, tens of thousands of tons uh, over their season this year in Illinois, central Illinois, they're in the Bloomington area, El Paso, Illinois, and they found that there was little or no fertilizer dust of the product that had been treated with the cetane. And that's just another one of those, you know, nuances that we didn't really, you know, advertise, but yet knowing that the carbon has this very strong affinity uh, bond to be able to uh, adhere. And of course, that's what we're after is that we want to make more of those nutrients hang around longer and make them available. You know, the one question, Jake, you had about over application. I mean, I think we all know historically, if we look at the reason, you know, that uh, the the fertilizer police or, you know, EPAs are chasing us around. And Tom is very familiar with this out in California. But, you know, they are the probably the strictest of anyone in the lower 48 states. But certainly now, uh, you know, we're getting a lot of pressure in uh, Minnesota with the 10,000 lakes of the nitrate leaching. But the nitrates leach because they weren't utilized by the plant. Uh, the biologicals didn't use everything that it was given. And, of course, our goal is to create a better balance in our soils so that we can get our biologicals in a better uh, position so that they can utilize more of those nutrients and aka the long-term result would be that we maybe don't have to use as much as what we've been using what we've been taught or told for 77 years now since the the end of world war ii that's when the advent of most of these man-made synthetic fertilizers and chemicals have all come into prominence and this has happened in a lot of our lifetimes. Some of us are, you know, up on that upper spectrum of that number of 77. And so we've seen this happen right before our eyes. And, and what I am so excited about is all of you younger growers and agronomists that are on this call tonight, that you guys have recognized that they that we've kind of overdone it. And uh looking for solutions to find a better balance so that we can all continue to grow and sustain and actually, I guess, reinvigorate, replenish our soils um, so that we can continue to do what we love to do, and that's grow crops and feed the world. I want to double back on the, the question there on, on uh, what forms to use and when. Um, so commenting that that try not to use nitrate later in the season. I understand we got to manage budgets as well. And so that's that's the other piece of this. So like what I'm going to do on my own farm this year is I'm going to back down the amount of 32 
um, in my Y drop pass, which in the past I've maybe run around 15 gallons to the acre of, of 32. I'm gonna back that down to 10 gallons up my rate of ATS in the mix and get more of the N from, from the ATS. Um, but that's, everybody's gotta find that comfort level of, of what you can afford because ATS is expensive when you, when you start looking at it from the form of N. Um, so, you know, price per pound, but at the same time is it, it may cost more up front, but can we drive more yield on the backside uh, to pay for it? So we got to weigh all those things out, but um, that's, that's what I'm doing on mine. I'm going to start working my 32 down in the wide drop and, and up in the ATS. Well, as you mentioned that, Jeremy, with the uh, ammonium thiosulfate, ATS, uh, Andy is still here on the call. Uh, Dan is not uh, Dan Coffin and tonight, but Dan, Dan just joined us. Okay, we're okay. Awesome. Well, Dan, welcome. Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Great. Well, Dan, what I was going to speak to, and I'd much rather you speak to it, is what you taught Jason and I a couple of years ago about the importance of sulfur in the corn plant, especially in that initial embryonic stages and germination of the corn seed as it relates to the Zen protein and what happens when you have a deficiency of sulfur and why you have been recommending that uh, ATS and other products that would get you that sulfur in that initial stage, because this is a talk about nitrogen and fertilizer. And so could you please uh, expound upon that? Yeah, let me see if I can. Uh, oh, does that get me on there? Yes, sir. Take hey, Dan. Glass, take my glasses off so I don't. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I was uh, late, guys. I had, uh, I got 15 projects going on tonight. But yeah, I think a lot of people don't uh, understand that connection uh, with, with early sulfur. Uh, and it's, there's a lot of misunderstandings. But the most important thing is the zine protein that is created must be deposited in every tiny microscopic kernel before that ear basically completely forms by V3. That zine protein is a sulfur requiring protein. Therefore, it's, it's dependent on sulfur to form and be functional. So oftentimes what we have is when you have ears that when you go out after pollination and you look at them and you see that very tiny thin tip on top where you can see kernels should be, but there's no kernel there. Now we're not talking about the ones that have aborted with a big red or brown or white cob or pink cob that you can see where the, the kernels are gone and you know they're just not there. We're talking about that little nice fine one that, that you can see that it's kind of got a tip on it. That's a sulfur deficiency in a corn plant when it's about three leaves tall. And so uh, if you have seen that, there are ways that you can actually augment it and help it get better. If you like what you've seen with the corns and growing it, but you, you still get that tip, try getting some sulfur down in the furrow or in the two by two so that that plant can find it at a very young stage. It, it must find enough to make enough zine protein by the time you're thinking, you know, between germination and B3, that's a lot of work to get done. So you've got to find it very readily in the first root mass, not, not the nodal roots. It's got to be in the the ear, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the very first set of roots, the seminal roots and the, and the radical root, that's the root that sets the ear on a corn plant. 
Awesome. Thanks, Dan. And uh, if you'd like to expand on anything else, if anyone has any other, you know, questions uh, agronomically on nitrogen, uh, we've got a, a great source of knowledge here with Dan. So fire away. Nadja, if you'd like to jump in here and uh, maybe help us out and explain to us on amino acids and proteins and, and what fish can do um, in building blocks. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, there's, there's um, the building blocks for proteins are amino acids. So you take a sugar, you smack a little nitrogen on it, different formulations, you make amino acids. Specific amino acids get trained together in long chains. That makes a protein. Now, if you're using plant-based amino acids as a nitrogen source, because you think about it, if I just, if I said it's a sugar with a nitrogen attached to it, that means that when the plant cleaves the nitrogen that it needs or wants, there's extra energy left over. So that makes amino acid nitrogen very, very efficient for plants because of the energy. Uh, and they're an energy conversion machine after all. Uh, the beauty of it is if we use plant-based amino acids as a part of our nitrogen source, the plant doesn't have to make nitrogen. It doesn't really have to move the nitrogen around. It just takes the amino acids that it finds and assimilates that in, into the place that it needs. So it's a very, very low energy demand for the plant. Whereas if we take nitrogen as a nitrate form or a, an ammonium form, if we have to convert it from nitrate back to ammonium, or if we have to grab it onto something and move it around the plant, then it takes energy. And every time we put more and more energy into this system, we're getting behind. And so uh, amino acids and proteins are a very, very good source uh, of nitrogen that the plant already completely, in most cases, understands. So when we have actually seen fish and the, the proteins and amino acids and, and different peptides and such in fish, they're very, very efficient. Now, when we give microbes that same material, Microbes can do some of that as well, bring those amino acids into their, into their systems. Uh, so that's very efficient for them. And even if they don't, if they decide to chew it up just to get the nitrogen that they want, look at all the energy they're releasing and the energy that they can get, get access to. So that nitrogen can be a very, very, very efficient form uh, when we start talking about putting something in the rate of one to two gallons out to the acre or maybe three to five total. Um, comparatively with, you know, in some cases, 40, 50, 60 pounds of other nitrogen, uh, people don't think that there's any way that you can make it that efficient, but you don't realize just how inefficient in some cases that nitrogen that we're using, that we're paying all this money for really is, uh, especially if we get to foliar nitrogens, if we make foliar applications of amino acids directly to plants, uh, foliar applications are typically six to 10 times more efficient anyway and then we increase the nitrogen efficiency with uh, amino acids or proteins. If we throw in a little sulfur, the sulfur makes the nitrogen much, much more efficient. That's one of the reasons I, I, I caught the end of the discussion there on the ammonium thiosulfate um, and using ammonium thiosulfate. Sure, most people will not consider the total loss of, of total nitrogen units when they suck out the nitrate or anything that's got converted to nitrate. But by the time you do all that, you're really not that much different in the total nitrogen anyway. And the nitrogen in thiosol is very stable. Um, for an extended period of time and will dramatically improve the yield potential of corn, especially during you know, test weight. And, um, and you don't have to make any conversions. Uh, so you're not losing a uh, so 13% loss in efficiency to convert nitrate back to an ammonium form. So um, if we have some kelp that we've got out there and we can make some of those things happen, um, it helps us. It's less costly. 
there's a whole lot of stuff that, that really guys from the agronomic side, um, I'm, I'm running through this quickly just to kind of help you understand that there is information out there. Um, understanding it may not be the exact thing that we're trying to accomplish at this point, but you have to understand that that information is out there. It just needs to be shared. And then, you know, we can sit back, talk about it quietly, calmly, and, uh, and run through numbers. And uh, we've had a number of people who've already tried some of this now for the last couple, three years and have been kind of stunned at, at what's been happening. Um, and it's just good physiological, plant physiological science uh, and making direct applications of the products that we're spending so much money on out here and trying to figure out ways to cut costs, but not do it in such a way that, it, that it's uh, cutting back our yield potential. So a lot of material uh, to cover in a very short period of time here, but um, realize that there is, uh, there is uh, help and hope uh, in this situation. Uh, to be able to uh, make things that didn't seem possible at one time. Uh, and, and most of us realize that because of the equipment changes, if we have the ability to wide drop or we want to side dress and, and we buy other products and we stabilize them with carbon and we stabilize them with thiosol and we do things to make sure that it's staying in the right form, all we're looking for is the right forms of nitrogen for these plants to become more efficient. And if we get them in the right places and at the right times, um, big changes can happen. And I have two questions for you on the sulfur part of it, and it's towards foliar applications. It's kind of a two-part question. So um, you said uh, I'm a huge sulfur fan. Like I use a, a ammonium sulfate in my top dress. Uh, and But from what you're saying, that might be a little too, not too late on, but as far as that V3, uh, might be, it'd be too late for that because I usually do that. V5, V6. Do you think if, when it, if I had uh, a foliar sulfur whenever I post my corn at V3, um, would there be benefit to that? And then also the second part of the question is what about um, sulfur at uh, foliar sulfur at like the V10 time frame, or maybe even with uh, a VT with my fungicide? Sure. Um, you know, the, the, I guess the first question is, if you say that you have been a very, um, very sulfur uh, friendly in the last few years, basically you kind of need to evaluate where your sulfur uh, levels come back when you start. Now, are you are you in continuous corn or corn soybean rotation? Corn soybean rotation. So okay. I was telling before you got on that uh, I feel like I've been seeing a benefit sulfur that I apply on my corn when I have it in my, uh, in, able to see, I feel like my beans responding after my corn, I feel like there's less lodging and I feel like my yields are higher because maybe the sulfur that's left in the stover as um, that breaks down in the soil and is brought back. I don't know if that's true or not, but it just seems like my, uh, beans are better after corn, better than they used to be. And one of the main things I've been doing for probably about eight years is uh, ammonium sulfate on my corn, a hundred pounds every year post. There's two things. Uh, is this Richard I'm talking to? Yes. Yeah. Okay, Richard. So there's a couple of things here that are critical. One is that soybeans um, demand, the, the newer lines of soybeans, are, are you non-GMO or are you a GMOs? GMO, uh, mainly okay. part in Stinflex and part uh, E3. 
Okay, so what we've got in the newer genetics that we have out there now, the newer genetics are demanding basically sulfur in August and September. It used to be the older lines that we had would, would demand it more earlier in the season, like in July, early August. Now they need really late season sulfur. So sulfur is critical to that situation. Realize that as your corn stover is breaking down, if it is breaking down and it's releasing the extra sulfur that it had in it, it's typically going to be, um, unless it's completely tilled and chopped up and made available early in the season, it may be coming in mid to late season as the, as the fodder is breaking down and actually helping those soybeans. The other thing to think about is one of the reasons why your corn may be actually be responding to sulfur is if the soybeans are sucking up all the sulfur at the end of the season and it's still in the fodder, if the fodder hasn't broken down yet by the time you get to spring to the corn or you haven't got it you know, really broken down, if it's been incorporated but hadn't broken down yet, then um, normally if sulfur was in the soil, you allow for every little bit of sulfur that you find. But if the, the soybeans are eating up the sulfur because of what's going on here, then your sulfur, as you made a comment a while ago, would an application of, um, of sulfur at V3 help be helpful? Uh, the answer is yes, if the plant hasn't gone you know, too far into its uh, ear production. By that time, it's getting kind of late. You know, v, V1, V2 may actually be a better shot. Uh, but even still, if you're needing it, then uh, V3 is still better than nothing. Um, at the VT or V10 to VT, your sulfur makes nitrogen uh, you've got to realize that certain proteins that are being made and manufactured in that, that plant that are very important and, and dependent upon making the plant more efficient, uh, three of them are sulfur dependent. And if you don't have enough sulfur, you don't make those proteins. If you don't make those proteins, complete conversion of everything in the plant's not possible. So you're still going to be okay yield-wise, but you'll never be top in because you haven't got enough sulfur. So even if you're throwing in some thiosol, um or anything with you know, some sulfate in it, uh, even ammonium sulfate or ammonium thiosulfate, a wide drop or a, or a, a thiosol of any form or fashion uh, with, that has some sulfur in it, um, or even, you know, even micronutrients that might be sulfate forms. All sulfate forms are going to be additive. You just got to be careful when you get into those mixes that you're not mixing it with something that you know, the sulfates won't, won't work with. So um, the answer is yes in all those situations. I think you're probably seeing response because of... Uh, uh, the physiology of the plants and uh, the general lack of sulfur in the environment because of, you know, government intervention over the last 20 to 30 years. And um, it's just impossible to keep enough sulfur out there because the microbes are in demand of it too. And so they need those sulfur units to be able to make themselves more efficient to do the work for you. Uh, so a little bit of sulfur these days, uh, because we are kind of weak in it goes a long, long way. Yeah, I think, uh, sorry to take over, but um, I think a lot of times, uh, a lot of my neighbors and stuff like that, um, they just overlook everything else and all that the all they think about is N, P, and K. And if yeah. they're gonna hot dress their corn, the only thing they think about is N, nothing else. Yeah. yeah. Have you noticed that your plants have developed that deeper, darker black green color with the, the sulfur additions? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And that that's that's an answer right there. If you're accomplishing that, you've gone a long way to make much more. Uh, consistency and uniformity are possible. Dan, I'm curious, like, or, or Jeremy, um, when is it, uh, or is it too late to ever put nitrogen on? And so when I'm talking, I'm in, I'm in an irrigation area. And with that said too, forms of nitrogen per kernel type, flowery versus more vitreous, is there something to that there? 
Jeremy, you want to take a shot at that? I guess that's a no. <laughs> the, it, the, the nitrogen applications and timing with the crop, especially even through center pivot irrigation, is going to be dependent upon what type of corn you're growing. Is it normally, in most of these cases, under pivots, we're talking about racehorse corns. And if you're planting GMO corns, uh, the greatest percentage of them are anymore are racehorse corns anyway. Racehorse corns have the wonderful capability of being able to feed, in most cases, all the way up to about six weeks post-pollination. So you can go right on into the middle and latter part of grain fill um, and still make applications of nitrogen um, and expect if, if you've got good moisture conditions along with the irrigation uh, or you're getting it obviously somewhat through foliar, but then also down into the crop, into the soil, into the crop. Uh, and they are amine forms, ammonium or amine forms. You'll still be making dry weight and, and dry matter and test weight. Um, the nitrate is going to give you no value unless you're actually putting it out there in conjunction with a kelp product that has uh, the enzyme nitrate reductase to be able to change that back over into uh, dry matter. And still, you know, that you're, you're, you've got a conversion factor, you've got a loss in energy, but at least you would be converting some stuff that's there. Uh, and all nitrates that are in the base of the stock could still be impacted by putting kelp on. So what's interesting is I think people haven't thought about that. It's like kelp is kind of pricey. But even kelp as a nitrogen um, transformation product at, let's say, you know, four to six dollars a quart uh, put through a center pivot can do some amazing things in late season, especially if it's been a wet season where you've had a lot of nitrates formed. That nitrate can be transformed in the base of that stalk and move up to the kernels and become test weight. So you can still do a lot of that nitrogen application. Uh, even in even in small spurts all the way through uh, up until I'd say six weeks post-pollination. You had another question in there too. I didn't catch the second part of that question, if it was a different form or not. Yeah, is there something to the forms of corn, whether it's a flowery corn or a uh, more vitreous type of Corn, is there a difference in how to use nitrogen? You know, those are two terms. I've been around a long time, and I've never heard corn referred to that way. So you 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 get the uh, stump the agronomist award. That's that's flowery versus flinty. Is I think might be another. That, okay. Yes, flint that would be corn. the other. One for, yeah. Uh, okay. Yep. Okay. I'm thinking F L O W. You're saying F L O U R. Okay. So you're talking about more lower test weight type corns, flowery type corns compared to a flinty type. Uh, I've got you. Okay. The what happens normally in the flowery types is, especially in the older genetics, uh, they tend to be fairly inefficient in their dry matter production, and a lot of that is because of their racehorse character. They need a lot more ammonium type nitrogens to be able to get a, a much more dense um, uh, starch into that dry matter. Uh, flinties are, are, you know, very, uh, can be very race, racy in, in, as well. Uh, and normally, um, you know, it, that genetics is not necessarily a given as to what you have to do and when you have to do it. Uh, I have seen a lot of flint type genetics that um, if you short the ammonium nitrogen early, they don't do as well. So keeping that ammonium nitrogen typically in that, uh, in that uh, two to three week period post-pollination is, is still fairly critical. Um, but I haven't done a lot of work specifically with you know, the newer flinty materials. 
Uh, they typically are very deep orange. They're higher test weight by nature. So I think they're a little more efficient in their, in their nitrogen gathering and the flowery ones tend to not be as good. And I would say that probably more than likely your application of your ammonium thiosulfates, especially on those flowery ones, as we talked a while ago through late pollination would dramatically improve the test weight and the quality of that grain. Dan, how much do you agree or disagree with adding biologicals and with these products for getting more nitrogen fixation? Oh, that's, that's a wild one. Um, what do you think? <laughs> well, I'm obviously for. I, I am, uh, is there a, is there 101% over a hundred? Um, there's a re there's, there's multiple reasons why. One is those microbes have extremely important roles to play for the corn plant itself and releasing nutrition and communication with that plant. They are the communicators between a dead soil that provides basically elements and minerals. They are the ones that possess the enzymes to make those things happen. So critical to keeping a lot of other nutrients available around those roots um, throughout the entirety of the season, uh, start to finish. The number one reason I want them in there in that nitrogen band is basically to consume the nitrogen. And I realize that sounds strange to most of you who've never heard that before, but what you realize is when a microbe, as a beneficial microbe, every five to 20 minutes, if it has enough carbon, enough food, and enough water, air, and nitrogen, it will actually double its population. So one in a 24-hour period can be up into the billions by tomorrow. And of course, we're putting out countless billions of, of these microbes per acre in some cases. What's going to happen is that nitrogen is completely consumed by making brand new microbial bodies in infinite numbers. And once you've done that, uh, with the exception of the nitrate, and there are a few that will consume nitrate, but not many. They, they don't really like nitrate. They want to let nitrate go and be washed out of the soil. But amine and urea forms in, in your 28 and 32%. Uh, can be completely consumed. And once they are in those biological bodies, they are now stabilized for a matter of weeks. So they will constantly be breaking down and releasing amine forms of nitrogen that your plant highly desires. So you are actually taking nitrogen, not worried about killing the microbes that are out here trying to convert it. You give it to the microbes that are wanting it, that can explode their populations, completely consume it and give you nitrogen for the rest of the season. So I always, even if it's a very, very small amount of microbes, I will put some carbon as humic acid, fulvic acid, you know, as, a, as an active form of carbon, even sugars in there and just basically tell them, look at the feast, um, have fun. And we have a lot of people who have started doing that now in the last couple of years, telling us that, you know, their yields and their test weights especially have gone up dramatically. And that's because we're continuing to provide that nitrogen in the ammonium forms throughout the end of the season, provided, you know, there's moisture to get it there. One of the other benefits of um, encouraging a good, healthy microbial population, both in diversity and, and, and uh, population density, is, as you had mentioned, there's constant communication back and forth between the microbes and the plant. And instead of, you know, always trying to figure out, well, what form of nitrogen does the plant need and how much does it need or whatever, the plant will talk to the microbes and let them know and they will do it. And That's so right. you... you you don't even have to think about it. The plant and the microbes think about it and they do it. And as long as you give them the environment that they, they need, 
uh, and you have a, a corn plant that is, or even a wheat plant, but corn is especially good at it, uh, you know, photosynthesizing at a, at a high capacity and generating um, sufficient sugars in order to, uh, you know, produce enough exudates to um, stimulate those microbes to the degree that, that the plants are able to provide that carbon source for the soil microbes themselves even to fix atmospheric nitrogen, um, then we can greatly reduce the amount of nitrogen that we even need to put on. Let the microbes and the plants talk to find out how much the plants need and what form they need and let the microbes provide it in that quantity and form that the plants need. And That's they, right. Yeah, and one, one of the other benefits too, when we were talking about different forms of nitrogen, um, the uh, um, amino acid forms of, of nitrogen is that those amino acids are also um, function as chelators. So if you are trying to add some micronutrients, like a little bit more manganese or zinc or magnesium uh, or copper, you can actually utilize those amino acids um, as chelators to hold on to those those micronutrients, and they can also effectively hold on to nitrogen as well. So, yeah, that's a very good point. You know, we, we forget that, you know, in, in many cases, um, we were talking a while ago about the sugars, amino acids, proteins, and enzymes. So enzymes are proteins that are all trained together. And many times those, those enzymes have to have these micronutrient, we call them cofactors or micronutrients actually stuck on the end of these enzymes. One of the technologies, you know, as you see as in the biostimulant business is people sell enzymes. Uh, these enzymes are trigger factors, if you will, for these, for these soils, the other microbes in the soil, when they see enzymes in the soil, they think, oh, something's been dying and the, and the enzymes are being released. And as enzymes break down, they break down into proteins and they break down into amino acids and they break down into all these nitrogen forms. And um, I think your, your point is a very valid one uh, that when we do this, and once again, we said a while ago, if the plant finds these as broken, op broken open bodies with all these amino acids, proteins, and in some cases enzymes, they know exactly what to utilize those pieces that they're finding in the soil. So it's a very, very enriched soil zone where dead microbes are. That's, that's where nutrition and fertility comes from in a large percentage of the soil is from dead microbes. But as you said, with that communication back and forth, when the, when the microbes are actually living, they're producing these acids and enzymes to be able to melt these minerals and make them available to the plants. So uh, there is, there's never been a reason, uh, even, even in cost, unless the costs were excessive, you're working with somebody that doesn't really uh, truly value the real value of microbes. Uh, if the costs are excessive, you know, 20, 30, 40 bucks an acre. Now, I don't know if that really uh, is gonna pay out but most good enzyme uh, or most good uh, biostimulant companies with a good live biological. And, you know, it's better to have a team if you can buy it. If not, you know, make sure that you try to get something with two to four or six types of microbes in there. It's better than one uh, because in some cases one may just make a mess. But teams of microbes that create communities are, are still far superior over to just single microbes in that situation. But if all you had was a single microbe or somebody dropped some stuff off and said, hey, you know, you should really try this. Uh, for goodness sakes, in, 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 the, in, the, uh, in the big picture, throw it in. And you know, if a normal rate is, is 12 to 16 ounces to the acre that you need, in these rich nitrogen bands, you really only need about four ounces. You don't need more than probably three or four ounces and they'll do the work for you. 
I think a couple of things that were, were mentioned there kind of tie back to, to this concept of balance. And, you know, we, we've touched on, on sulfur a bit and now we're, now we're into the biology, but when we think about too much nitrogen, I mean, we can have too much anything. We can have too much potassium. We can have too much phosphorus. I mean, we, we deal with a lot of that, those two nutrients and, and fields around us that have had hog manure for 20 years and they're, they look great because their levels are off the charts, but it's it's too much, or at least then how do we balance it? And I, I think that's where the, um, the the biology become an amazing buffer in the ability to balance it if we can if we can focus on the biology and get them working, and they're communicating with the plant. We have so much nutrition in in our soils already that if they're working properly and the plant needs something, they're gonna have a better ability to spoon feed that plant than we are gonna be able to via tissue testing and um, applying three, five days later or whatever, um, trying to spoon feed individual nutrients and things. Um, to, to get the balance in proportion is, is one of the biggest things. Yeah, and one of the other things too with with the the natural systems and the microbial systems is that they're naturally self-regulating, and so a lot of times what ends up happening is, you know, we think we're doing a great thing. I'm gonna, I'm, you know, I need uh, you know a pound of nitrogen for each bushel of corn, and so therefore I need to put that amount of nitrogen out for the plants. But what we end up doing is providing. Uh, nitrogen it can even be done with phosphorus and, and many other things but oftentimes it's done with nitrogen um where we we provide so much nitrogen um all at once that we create an environment in a situation where there's an excess in that snapshot moment in time that we apply it there's an excess and so the natural systems when they detect that highly elevated level of nitrogen go oh my goodness this is way too much we need to shut down and so the natural nitrogen fixation processes tend to be um, subdued um, inhibited or even totally shut right off now there's an excess of nitrogen in there so it doesn't really matter at that point but as the plant the, and, and the micro populations use up that nitrogen that we spent money on and we spent time and effort and energy to throw out there as that gets depleted now it then 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 we run into a situation where where the nitrogen reserves or levels that we've provided in the soil now start to become depleted and then at that point, the plants and the microbes go, oh, hey, wait a minute, we have, now we don't have enough nitrogen. But because you've put them to sleep and you've shut them down, it takes some time for their activity to ramp back up. And it's that period of that ramp up where the demand is higher than the production, where you run into deficiency problems. And, and so making sure that that, you keep that, those plants and those microbes in that little bit of a, a, a hungry situation and forcing them to work to provide that and do the job that they're supposed to do ensures 
that they're they're in good working order and in good shape you know you can't run a marathon if you're not actually going out and running every day and practicing and it's the same thing with with the the natural um, nitrogen fixation mechanisms um, excess nitrogen and excess phosphorus are also two um, signals and triggers that inhibit mycorrhizal fungi it'll inhibit them or shut them right down um, and, and the benefits of mycorrhizal fungi is, is significant and something that you definitely don't want to suppress. Um, but we inadvertently do by applying excess nutrients, soluble, um, available nutrients. Nadja, that leads into something that uh, became apparent this year. A lot of my uh, growers in Minnesota found that uh, they had very marginal soybean crops this year. And in looking and trying to analyze why that was, because they did get the moisture uh, pretty much at the time they needed it, they had abundant corn crops. But what they found in that their rotational uh, from last year to this year, corn to beans and then beans back to corn, that there was significant uh, over desirable rates of nitrate in the ground from the corn from 21, this year's 22 bean crop basically didn't nodulizate. They, there was no nodulization. The beans got lazy because they saw early on all that nitrate there. And they said, look, we don't have to build the nodules this year. We got all this nitrate readily available. And of course that ran out of gas, just what you're alluding to, but that bean crop then was in the 30 and 40 bushel bean crop where it certainly before two years ago was in the 60 to 70 bushel average range. And they didn't know that basically that corn crop the year prior had not used up all that nitrogen. So that is the danger of this excess uh, nitrogen and that excess nitrate that was laying there and that bean crop got real lazy. Yeah, absolutely. With, with uh, any any of the legumes, um, yeah, they will not um, initiate that um, nodulation relationship with whichever microbe that they're going to establish that relationship with if they have sufficient excess nitrogen in the environment. Why would they invest in forming that, that nodule structure? And why would they invest in... in providing sugars to and feeding those microbes if they can get sufficient nitrogen from the environment. So, uh, and, and, you know, if you have a, an okay level of nitrogen, they'll, they'll form a proper relationship. But if you have an excess, then they're like, just like everybody else, they're lazy, inherently lazy, right? Like I say, you know, one of the examples that I use or an analogy is that, uh, you know, if somebody was to show up at your door at five o'clock every night with, I uh, no pizza one night and fried chicken the next night, and Chinese food the next night, and, you know, Mexican tacos the next night, would you ever cook? Probably not. Most people would just wait for that <laughs> meal at five o'clock. Now, I don't, I don't cook you... anyway. That's what my wife's for, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, uh, but I do thank you. I do thank you, George. Make a perfect uh, something I really never thought about is you. 
you wouldn't want to you would want to make sure that you didn't have any nitrogen hardly left over because uh i mean that boy that could really hurt somebody pretty bad and i never thought about that so, uh, yeah and, and the other thing too to consider is is you know if you're getting pizza chinese food you know fried chicken whatever i mean you can survive on that absolutely are you going to but are you going to be healthy that's the other thing too right is that good food for you once in a while is okay but you certainly don't want to eat it every day so that, that's another difference between um that which is provided by nature natural forms versus the synthetic forms the synthetic forms are good for you know uh, uh emergency I, I would say emergency or, or, or a stopgap um but i i think the the um the response and the um the ease with which the plants and the microbes uh, recognize and utilize the natural forms of not just nitrogen but virtually any any form of, of nutrients is is uh, much better um, there, there's a much better response from those natural forms than there is so to, to you know look at those various different natural forms and and uh, how they can be utilized in your programs the other thing to always be considering, uh, recognize we go back to plant physiology, um, soybeans make a lot more enzymes to break down nitrate. So nitrate reductase, for instance, they make a higher level of it than corn ever thought about it. However, with all the nitrate being there, there's a lot of nitrate to be broken down. And the cofactor, the micronutrient element necessary to set out on the end of the enzyme to make nitrate reductase work. A little bit of cobalt and a little bit of moly, especially moly. And so this is one of the reasons why we've started putting moly in our boron, uh, because it's doing a much, much better job of, of returning investment. Because in some cases, there isn't enough moly out there to get the job done. Now, you don't want lots and lots of it. You don't need lots and lots of it, but you need a little. And so what we've helped people realize is a couple of things. One is if we do put something with molly in it, that helps the plants get rid of more nitrate. And the other thing is thinking about this, it's like, wow, if, if kelp has nitrate reductase in it, if we spray kelp over young beans that, that aren't nodulating, we can help a lot of that nitrogen that's getting into the plant be in the right form. And the, and the plant will go ahead and continue to, to make better yield potential because we're giving it things it needs to fix its issues. Um, this is no different than doctoring anything else in life, uh, folks. I mean, this is, I know it, maybe it sounds confusing and it's a lot of stuff to, to assimilate, but it, it's no different if we recognize why, you know, certain people have certain health issues. It's no different. We know that something's missing. You know, if you're lactose intolerant, you don't go eating lactose rich foods unless you take some lactase. It's the same thing. It's just finding out what the things need and providing it and helping the plants be more efficient at doing what they're doing when they need to be doing something differently. Um, sadly, you know, the information that we're sharing tonight, again, is, is missing agronomy that's been missing for, for 30 years. And it's not that people don't know what's out there. This has all been researched very effectively. I mean, how can I know it? I'm going to be 62. But I learned a lot of this stuff back in college and, and, and you know, just getting out of college. And that was, uh, gee, almost 40 years ago. So, you know, uh, we just need to be more aware of what's really going on out here. And 
all of these things are tools and they're the proper tools at the right time for proper things. And this is one of the reasons why I think more and more people are, are frustrated with just chasing numbers in tissue, uh, uh, tissue tests. What good does it do to chase numbers in a tissue test if you don't know what they even represent or mean? Uh, so as they begin to get the ideas of what's really going on inside that plant at certain times, it makes sense why we do some of the things that we do these days. And uh, it's why I think uh, folks like, uh, you know, George and Carbon Works and, you know, Jeremy's doing this tonight for you guys and, and, and seeking out folks like ourselves, you know, uh, me at SP and C, they're looking for that information because um, we're not charging for that information. It's just that, you know, if you've got products that fit and make them that make them more efficient and help the plants be more efficient or the microbes. It doesn't matter if the microbes aren't efficient, you fix them. If the microbes are efficient and the plants are inefficient, you fix them or maybe you have to fix both. But the point is it's, it's not in vain to do some of these things when, when people just go out here and they you, you think they're just looking to try to sell you something differently. Uh, granted, there are a number of people who don't know what they're talking about and they are just selling things or hawking products, hawking snake oil, as we used to call it. But those who do know what they're doing are basically just trying to help you figure out what kind of systems uh, may be dysfunctional at some certain point and fix the function. Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned with the molybdenum and, and the um, conversion of, of nitrates within the plant, um, anytime that I ever work with any anyone and we're doing you know tissue analysis or sap analysis or whatever, I absolutely insist on getting a nitrate test. You know, people when people do an analysis, they just want NPK and, and they don't pay attention to the form that that nitrogen is in. And like you said, the plant can take up nitrates, but then all it's doing is taking up nitrates and it doesn't do anything other than water everything down because the nitrate has to come up with a whole bunch of water, which is, you know, watering everything down is it's not good either. Um, but getting that nitrate converted to uh, amino acids and then proteins, that, that's what you want. So yes, it's quite possible to have good levels of nitrogen in the plant or even luxury levels of nitrogen in a plant and have very low nitrate levels. That's actually desirable because uh, a lot of times um, high nitrate levels is associated with uh, palatability for insects because they, they like those nitrates they can actually utilize and digest the nitrate forms of nitrogen where they tend to have a little bit more difficulty with the amino acids and especially the proteins and, and some of the more complex forms of nitrogen that can be in the plant in the form of other phytochemicals and whatnot. So that's the form of nitrogen that you wanna to try to get into your plant and get, get the plant to convert to so that you can reduce your uh, insect pressures. would would someone want to talk a minute i i haven't spent a whole lot of time studying where potassium fits in uh, in relationship to nitrogen but i i think there's a relationship there um somebody want to talk about that in in terms of how potassium relates to nitrogen That's a, that's a fairly complex discussion. Um, I think you just opened a, a can of worms there, Jeremy. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of depends on from which standpoint you're asking the question. I mean, obviously, nitrogen and potassium are, are 
are independently important you know, to the plant as macronutrients, as high, high demand nutrients. Um, the, the problem that we have uh, is, again, we go back to forms and issues. Uh, plant, uh, corn plants, all grass plants suffer with a problem. And that problem is luxury consumption. It's called luxury consumption. All grasses do this. Whenever there's excessive potassium in the environment, then grasses will tend to load it. It's almost like a, a human on crack cocaine. It's like once they start taking it, it's like they can't stop and they just keep you know, wanting and wanting. That can be a problem if you don't have the right balance of, of nitrogen as we talked about through this whole discussion. Um, if you have amine forms of nitrogen or organic forms or ammonium forms of nitrogen in the early part of the season, you know, the, the charge on ammonium nitrogen is NH4 plus. It's got a positive charge on it, a single positive charge. Potassium also has a single positive charge. When a corn plant is setting its yield potential at V3, a very small plant, if you have too much potassium in the soil environment, readily available to the plant, and the plant sucks it in, what happens is because of the balance of the total number of charges in that plant, there's no excessive room for ammonium nitrogen. And ammonium nitrogen, because it's got that plus charge, just like potassium, is, is, is in demand by the plant to set its yield potential. So if you've got too much potash in your tissue when that plant is this tall, you cannot make the maximum size ear. Therefore, you will still potentially make a good size ear and have a good yield but you'll never have the maximum benefit out of it because of an over supply of potassium too soon. This is one of the reasons why a lot of people have gone to putting on potassium with ammonium sulfate as a dry product after V5 to V6, because if the ear is already formed, then you can put on as much potash as you want up to a certain extent and not pay a negative price. As a matter of fact, most of the research that's been done on that will show you that you'll get a yield boost if you really do need potassium. But if you're oversupplying nitrate or oversupplying potassium and you're only applying nitrate types fertilizers, well, nitrate being a negative, it doesn't have this problem uh, with potassium. However, what does nitrate do to form yield? Nothing. So you've got these nice, beautiful, green, pretty plants full of nitrate nitrogen, and you might be loaded up with potash and you might go to nitrogen and do a, a, nitro, a nitrogen analysis in the tissue and it looks fine and everything else. But but your system's messed up. Take that to the end of the season and you have a high nitrogen demand and a high potassium demand to a certain extent, um, then there's probably a ratio established that's, that's pretty good for that plant, but the bets are off at that point. Um, I mean, the number one thing that you're trying to do late in the season is making sure that the potash is there to help you get good stand and standability. Um, keep the sugars up to a certain extent, keep things moving around in the plant. But then from what we've now begun to realize in the last few years is if we keep the boron levels up, we don't need to carry as much potash in the plant. So if we don't have to keep as much potash in the plant because the boron is there and the sugars are moving, then what happens to this relationship that you just asked about between potassium and nitrogen? It all falls out of, of, of bed. So it's a very, very deep and, and, I would say 
more open for debate discussion in the last 20 years than it's ever been because we have a lot of people that frankly have low potash levels in their farms and have constantly worried about potash and as the potash continues to dwindle in some cases the yield continues to climb especially if they've been using boron and they're sitting there scratching their heads saying what's wrong with this picture if they put on manure for years and have a decent amount of potash and all the other nutrients are in a better balance they don't seem to need much more potash so uh, it, you're right it's a can of worms um, and I think what's going to end up eventually happening is, uh, depending on the price of potash, if it stays up, this debate will go on in a high heated situation for a long time. If the price falls, people don't care. They're going to go back to using it anyway. Yeah, and, and I've, I've seen um, potash levels, we'll, we'll say potash levels on a soil test, because, I mean, you're not going to create potash out of thin air. But we know that a soil test is gives you an idea of what could potentially be available to the plant, not what is actually there in the soil. Um, but I've seen soil test potash numbers, um, you know, triple and quadruple in a single year without the application of any potash fertilizer, simply through the use of, of biological stimulation and biology. So. Um, you know, fostering that microbial, having a good, healthy, living soil goes a long way with um, making nutrients available. And again, then we don't have to think about, you know, the ratios and how much of this and how much of that. They deal with that themselves. Mm -hmm. um, all we got to do is, is make sure that we create a good environment and they figure out the details. You know, one of the other things that I've seen through the years is, you know, as we started making foliar applications with um, sugars, folic acids or humic acids and providing carbon. And when we put the carbon in there and the carbon levels go up and the sugar levels go up overnight, brand new root formations are out there the next morning. You can go out and dig up plants and you'll see brand new roots. I maintain and I ask people all the time, if you've got brand new roots growing up to um, soil particles that the plant did not see yesterday, so we've got brand new fresh roots coming from, from the root systems all over the root in the brand new uh, areas that they haven't touched yesterday. Do you have a potash increase? And e even the most simple of farmers who doesn't really understand a lot of things says, well, I suppose if it's in new areas that haven't been basically farmed out yet, you're going to find more potash. And the answer is yes. And I've seen guys that are teetering on a little bit with, with potash deficiency in their tissue and go out and put on sugar and get a potash increase. That's not a surprise if you understand what I just said. So instead of just going out there and buying, buying, buying more expensive products all the time, especially as the prices go through the roof, sometimes the simplest things can, can fix, you know, what looks to be one of the most complex and expensive problems. So it's just a matter of how you see the plant and what you want to do and whether you have the equipment to get the job done. Yeah. And, and another way to um, explore additional soil um, soil structure and, and soil particles is um, through uh, soil fungi, right? right? Whether it's saprophytes going out and breaking stuff down and releasing it into the soil structure that plants can later access or whether it's through, uh, you know, direct um, relationship with the plant, like through a mycorrhizal type 
whether it's um, you know uh, endophyter or ecto um, mycorrhizal um, fungi, where they're the the fungi are exploring the soil, and then they're transporting those nutrients directly to the plant root root system. Um, that's another way um, to do that. So again, it's all part of that whole soil ecosystem and the soil fungi is one one of the um, families of organisms in soils that I found through the microscopy that I do that oftentimes is um, badly damaged. So that's definitely something to to look at to try to uh, work on, whether through a you know highly fungal compost or um, you know extracts or um, however you can try to to uh, promote the fungi in the soil it makes a big big difference. And One of the uh, there's chats a difference between um, promoting the fungi in the soil and promoting the wrong type of fungi on the plants. Yes, healthy plants though won't be bothered by by uh, fungi on on their surface. Uh, most of the time, when you you do have fungal diseases on the plant, the uh, those spores have been sitting there all season, just sitting on that leaf, waiting for um, the, the right environment. And it's usually a, a nutrient imbalance or deficiency that creates that desirable environment. And then those spores wake up and then ta-da, you have a disease problem. Um, I've, had, I've had clients that, that have had, um, you know, wheat fields that are, uh, you know, for, 50 feet, 100 feet in from the neighbor's wheat field, and the neighbor's wheat field is loaded with rust, and so the client's field is like completely orange with spores, but yet their plants don't have any rust on them. They're covered in the spores, but they don't get the disease, and their fields are clean. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I called Insects and Disease Mother Nature's cleanup crew. They're out there cleaning up the garbage. So stuff that's not healthy, that's what they're there to take care of because actually if it's food for insects and disease it's not food for us we shouldn't be you know artificially getting rid of those things and then eating that food it's not good for us so um so you know paying attention to that um nutritional status of the plant and having a healthy plant in order to um you know, prevent those disease organisms from, from having a, a suitable environment to grow is also key. That's where I've seen, uh, you know, two of the oldest elements that are involved as fungicides, if you will, are copper and sulfur. And if you can get your copper levels up inside the tissue and sulfur levels up inside the tissue and even sulfur levels up on the outside of the tissue, if there's sulfur, we've been having this chat, you know, in the side, sidebar here on gypsum and gypsum provides sulfur and sulfur is a very important element for fungi to do their work. They, they need a lot of sulfur. They need acid forming type things. And one of the ways you can increase your potash uptake as well as get all these other beautiful pieces that we're talking about biologically developed is through gypsum. 
And gypsum, typically in most of the areas that we're working at in the country, uh, the question was, do we leave it on top or do we incorporate it? Normally, I leave it on top because it does have water solubility and will move in. And if you leave it on top, it will grab some magnesium and move it down off the surface and help the surface be open and pliable. And if you can actually get that soil to flocculate the clays to be able to open and expand and become more airy, if you will, and allow for better root penetration, I've seen people get potassium, uh, potassium increases just from, you know, having much more viable and open soils and the clays not sitting there swollen or, or uh, shrunk down completely tight. They're open up and, and flocculated and boom, you get all this. You get the air in there, the fungi do well, the bacteria do well, the plant roots do well, the nutrition comes up in the plant and lo and behold, exactly what we're talking about here, plants aren't sick anymore. Um, it's, it's just, it's so commonsensical that we just, we, we forget about all the stuff we've done. And that's one of the most single frustrating things in our life is that it was like, where did the common sense go in farming? Some of the best old farmers you ever met were the best common sense people. Absolutely. Yeah, we've, we've, we've lost a lot of the knowledge and, and, and we're rediscovering things that, that people have known for centuries, right? So. The old adage, Nadja, it's hidden in plain sight. There's nothing new under the sun. There's yep. not. There's nothing new. Yep. You guys might have numbed everybody's minds and uh, they don't know what to think right now. Anybody else have any questions? I mean, uh, Dan, Nadja, thank you guys very, very much for sharing this wealth of, of information. Dan, I had a question for you. Um, come late season nitrogen, we talk about uh, ammonium nitrate and the use of sea kelp, um, nitrogen reductase. Why is ammonium so important come grain fill? Why is it so important? It's basically the main and, and most readily available form of nitrogen moving to form all the materials that go into our dry matter. Uh, nitrate doesn't do that. Nitrate is not really capable of, of getting into that successfully whatsoever. So we talk about amine or ammonium forms because the plant must have them to be efficient in laying down its dry matter in those kernels. And more and more dry matter in the kernels means higher test weight, and higher test weight means to more total weight, you know, in the machinery on, on the grain and you're going to get, you know, paid for it. So um, it's, it's, it's a natural system that everything in nature prefers ammonium nitrogen to reproduce. That's just the nature of it. It always has been. It always will be. Um, there are a few things that can utilize nitrate, but, but not nearly as many. And most of those are not um, things that we want to deal with. When we talk about diseases in corn, the gibberellas, the fusariums, the, the all kinds of different stalk rots, you know, are, are more functional in a plant that's high in nitrates because plants high in nitrates, as Nadja mentioned, was water and other things that cause that plant to be susceptible to problems. So uh, amine and, and ammonium, natural forms of nitrogen, organic forms of nitrogen and ammonium forms of nitrogen, you know, it's one of the reasons why we started using Inserv back in the 60s and 70s was to try to keep plants or keep microbes from converting ammonium, ammonia, which goes into ammonium forms when it reacts with water, 
over to nitrate. And see, we always did that when it was first done, we used that when. Now, you're probably young enough, you don't know this, but you know, when we were young, you put on your nitrogen at knee high or later carbon. And when they put that on and put that nitrogen inhibitor in there, then the ammonia would stay as ammonia for a lot longer period of time. And the longer you could keep it, the higher the test weight in the corn would be and it would stand better. Well, that just makes sense because we kept it as an ammonium form. So the whole idea of, of changing nitrogen <clears throat> over into nitrate got to be such, a, such an issue and how much money was made by the people who pushed the nitrification inhibitors um, and destroyed you know, soil biology in a sense all around that um, for, and for multiple reasons. Um, became the standard. It's like, well, if we just kill the microbes, they can't do the they can't do the negative work. So the longer we keep them dead, the longer it'll stay. Well, that's true, but you know, you can't you can't keep killing off the microbes in the soil uh, to manage what God has put there to to keep things balanced. Anyway, it's just it doesn't work. Um, and if it does, over time, you do it too much, you're going to end up butchering that soil anyway, and it's gonna it's gonna end up you know going <clears throat> dying on you if you don't know what you're doing. Um, but that's the reason Which why we we're don't, talking about we don't about know all what these we're doing. Forms. <laughs> that's what got us in trouble long 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 time ago was we thought we knew better than what god did we <laughs> and, always have and, right? and it gets us in trouble nowadays too <laughs> yes but yeah like like you mentioned generally speaking um if you think about the effect on on the plant physiology of nitrates versus ammonia um, nitrates tend to push vegetative growth and ammonia tends to push reproductive growth. Um, so the only times that I will recommend for my clients to use nitrates later on in the season is if they've had something happen to the plants where let's say they had a army worms go through or my tomato guys had an infestation of hornworms that they didn't get on top of or you know hail goes through and rips half the leaves off the plants and you want to switch your tomato plants or your pepper plants back into uh, a vegetative sta stage to try to grow more leaves on them, um, then you can give them a shot of that nitrate and it'll sort of pause the reproductive um, physiology of the plant and throw it back into vegetative, grow a whole bunch of leaves. And then once it, the nit nitrate levels burn out, then it switches back to, to reproductive. Um, but uh, yeah, so understanding what stage that the plant is, is in uh, can help to determine what form of, of nitrogen is, is uh, more suitable to apply or to utilize or make available to the plant. But yeah, even, even on a tissue test, um, if you're looking at, or, or you're not gonna get on a tissue, you'll get your nitrogen and you'll get nitrate. But if you want ammonia as well, you usually have to do a sap analysis. Um, and in that instance, you're looking for at least three, four times the amount of ammonia as you have nitrate in the plant and preferably much, much lower nitrate levels in the plant. But yeah, you definitely want a much higher ammonium level in the plant than you do um, a nitrate level. So if you actually consider what she just told you, and when we start letting people do their own late season stock nitrate tests, and they have 15 to 20,000 parts per million of stock nitrate. Oh, foliar molly. Foliar molly. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, 
there's just there's just a lot of things that when we actually know what's going on behind the scenes, it, it's not it's not that challenging to fix it. But if you if you don't know it, you're walking into this. You know, we've got just sucker plastered all over the front of our foreheads, and we shouldn't because you know we 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 get educated. We're 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 one of the most educated or educatable groups in the entire world for business, but we just get. We just keep getting the same old indoctrination and, and we're not being fed the right stuff. Once we actually do get fed the right stuff, it's fascinating how, how quickly people walk away from what they've done before and see differences happening and they just leave it behind and they're like, oh, we're doing something different. We're not doing that anymore. Really? Yeah, okay. I would guess that those, those growers that have 15,000 parts per million of nitrate in their and their stalks are probably looking at corn borer and uh, earworm and uh, <laughs> maybe even grasshoppers eating the plants, <laughs> all kinds of insect problems, I'm imagining, on those plants. Um, and you might as, you might as well put up there. a neon sign that says, you know, eat at Joe's right here. Come on over here, bugs. Like, this is the place to be. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. I, 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 when I was back in entomology in college, we used to talk about different things. And one of the things is, as you mentioned, when, when you're running so high in nitrates, you're running much, much lower, you're running much, much higher water, sugar levels are lower and plants actually fluoresce a different color. They, they fluoresce it in an infrared or, a, or an ultraviolet spectrum when, you know, when the government goes out and takes pictures from the satellites in these high stress years and you can pick out your high your high hills compared to your low spots where there's moisture and the plants aren't stressed and you see those color differences. Well, that's what, that's what the insects see when they fly over your field. And so when the plants are loaded up with nitrates, as Nadia said, and, and the, uh, the waters are high and the sugars are low, that's what they're looking for to take out. And by golly, they start in the weak spots and there you go. And you've got an infestation on your hand. Yeah. There's, there's a reason that, that most insects have their taste buds on their feet. Right. <laughs> so thank goodness we don't. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know when when that that adult reproducing insect is looking for a plant to lay its eggs on for its little babies um, it's as it walks on that plant leaf surface it's doing its tissue analysis chemical analysis of whether or not that plant's going to kill its babies if its babies start to eat it and if it is it's going to move to another field or to another plant or hopefully the neighbor's field or the hedgerow or whatever to some plant that's weak that has the chemistry that will support and not kill its babies and then it will lay its eggs on that so low bricks high nitrate um and then plants that 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 aren't producing complex phytochemicals which you need to have a healthy plant with a good, healthy, um, positive feedback relationship with the soil microbes for those plants to be producing those complex phytochemicals. And those are the ones that are needed uh, in order to make your plants resistant to some of the, um, the more noxious chewing beetles. They tend to be some of the most more difficult ones like um, Japanese beetles or chafers um, um, that that grasshoppers those types of insects tend to be more difficult to uh, to deter from chewing on your plants but having high bricks levels low nitrate and high phytochemical 
complex phytochemical levels in your plants um, makes it unpalatable and even undigestible and, and essentially toxic for those bugs. So I'm going to talk about your plants producing their own pesticides. That's how you do it. And those complex phytochemicals that are toxic to those insects that they can't digest are actually good for us, healthy for us to eat. So when, when, when you start getting the, the, the deer and the rabbits eating your, your crops instead of the bugs, now you know you're starting to, to grow people food instead of bug food. Well, if the government wants us eating insects, I guess we should just grow poor crops. We can sit out in the field and be full. Don't give them any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I'd rather have a big juicy army worm than a little old nasty corn borer. So. Well, well, at least biblically speaking, the, the grasshoppers and crickets are considered clean insects that are on, on the menu. Those other ones aren't, but if you really have to, the crickets and the grasshoppers are the ones that are supposedly okay for us to eat. <laughs> well, good everyone, thank you for... Uh being a part of this tonight. Uh, if there's any other questions, please, uh, you know, uh, speak out. Uh, Dan, uh, again, Anadja, everybody, uh, Richard, uh, everybody, Canada to Florida to California, uh, Midwest, uh, Corn Belt, uh, Andy Dardini, uh, Larry, Jeremy, uh, thank you, Jeremy, for uh, being our guest uh, tonight to get this started off. Uh, this has been a phenomenal incredible meeting. I mean, we've had over 30 uh, on board tonight, and it's one of our biggest yet. And uh, keep sharing the word. Uh, that's what this is all about. It's an open forum, just like this has been the exact way we want it. Uh, and ask what you, you know, anything you want. Uh, we're, that's what this is for. And I really appreciate you uh, being engaged tonight. There certainly was a lot of great uh, information shared. It's overwhelming at one sitting. And of course, we've been going now for about an hour and 45 minutes. And so, but I know everybody's head's probably spinning at some point. But uh, again, and we also want you to let us know what you would like to hear on future calls. We're, we're wanting to you know, present what you want to know. Uh, we certainly will pick topics, but uh, this topic was asked for. Uh, the, the last call we had uh, about crop insurance was a phenomenal call. Uh, we're looking at possibly doing one with uh, the FSA, uh, but any subject, agronomic or otherwise, uh, this is all about sharing information. And we've all got a lot of information and we can all learn from each other. And so, Thank you for allowing us to share with you tonight. Hey, George, it's the first one I've attended and what a wealth of information. I definitely have a few names of some people to add on from say the central California area from the Salinas Valley, then also down into Yuma, they cover a large area. We have Odom out here, one of the largest almond growers on the West coast. And you know, who they are, I mean, they're just a lot of 
interesting people out here. I'm going to try and get three or four to jump on with this group, um, but incredible knowledge here tonight, this evening. Thank you for including me. Well, thank you, Tom. And Tom, so a lot of you wouldn't know, but Tom's family has been in agriculture for <laughs> almost centuries, a long, long time. And uh, Tom's brothers uh, grow uh, a lot of produce out in California and uh, along with other crops. And they're phenomenal agricultural uh, business people. And uh, I really appreciate you being on tonight, Tom. And, you know, there we've got a wealth of information here, uh, agronomic and otherwise. And uh, again, uh, thank you for uh, being a part of this. Hey, George, one other point, not being an agronomist from what Dan and everyone else spoke to tonight. I followed it all the way through and each additional moment, minute went by. You know, you can pick up the the logic and the thought processes and just the, you know, the synergies. I spent a lot of time in the west side in the cotton field out there working with the agronomists and 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 chasing down mites and ligates in the summertime and watching the corn start about ankle high and marking your gene by the end of the summer, it's up waist high. So to to have that experience many, many, many years ago and then just following this this evening, I know there's a few other people I'd like to definitely have joined this and they can contribute to it. So thank you. Well, thanks. You know, I started in California in 2013 on cotton, of all things, uh, being from the South and growing up in the land of cotton, uh, to go to California to irrigated cotton, which is like Dan knows, that's a totally different crop than the cotton we grow in the South, uh, depending on just mother nature and may or may not get a half a bale an acre of cotton. But in California, you can get 3.3 bales an acre on irrigated cotton and it's worth a lot of money. But you know, almonds and then grapes and then uh, melons and tomatoes, and, you know, processed tomatoes in California is really big. And then where Tom's family is, is over in the Salinas Valley. They grow all the exotics, you know, all the lettuces and the, the artichokes and everything else is just, you know, hundreds of different crops grown over there in the Salinas Valley and strawberries, big one. Uh, and two of our biggest customers now in California are, are Gallo wine and uh, Driscoll berries. And, uh, you know, it didn't happen overnight. This has been a labor of love of mine now for 18 years out here in the field. And and when you were talking earlier, Dan, it all started actually in Minnesota. And when you're looking at making nutrients available in the soil, the reason that we were able to sustain growers and uh, the products in Minnesota in 2010, 11, 12, and all the way to today We've got growers who've been using CarbonWorks products for 13 years on corn and soybeans in Minnesota, but it all started out with uh, third-party independent research through Nate Furley and Ag Revival, and at that time it was Legend Seed Company, and then it became Bex and others, but we actually did it through the soil sampling on grid sampling, and we showed that we were enhancing the availability of FOSS and potash in soils where we weren't adding to it every year, and especially not at the levels that the co-op wanted because it wasn't affordable. I mean, FOSS was $1,600 a ton, and we had sub $3 corn. I mean, you know, we all love where we're at now in a way of the commodity prices, but we've also don't like what our input costs have gone to. But reality was, was that We've had a lot of years prior to three years ago, we have a lot of years of sub $3 corn and eight, $9 beans. And, uh, you know, reality was, was that that's where I cut my teeth, Dan, was in 
Minnesota on, you know, in a tough climate anyway, but mm-hmm. utilizing the products to enhance what was there, what Nadja was talking about earlier. Uh, we didn't have the luxury of the bugs in a jug or nor had any dollars to buy any such thing back then. Uh, this is 13 years ago. We were just going in with what was native there and had high organic matter and they had, uh, you know, uh, plenty of water, uh, but they needed the right balance. And that's what Jeremy alluded to earlier. If you've ever heard me say anything in the last 18 years, it's all about seeking the right balance. Uh, We're just another tool in the toolbox. There's a lot of tools in the toolbox. And the beauty of what we're doing tonight is that we're revealing some of our other tools that we don't know about, we didn't know about. And that's the whole goal of this sharing call, farmer sharing calls or so that we can all learn from each other, get that synergy of us all working together, because then the greater good is that we are much larger than the individual parts. You know, it's fascinating that, like you said, you cut your teeth on high organic matter soils. I get that question all the time. How can I put humic acid in a high organic matter soil and expect to get something back out of it? not knowing the difference between, you know, active fractions and stable fractions of organic matter and how they're available. And I, I think of Tom there in the Salinas Valley, and, you know, I'm sure one way or the other, Tom, I think you've got to be using some organic products like that. I mean, the, 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 the humics or fulvics, because, you know, with, with low organic matter, you need food for those microbes. You need a balance of carbon to be able to have that nitrogen, you know, stay available and, and, and be biologically active and available to the plants. And the quality of the, of the of the production that hopefully if you're doing some of that you're starting to see a major change in the quality of the production because that's exactly what George really represents to this industry is taking soils that have been even doesn't matter how high organic matter they are if they've been dilapidated and tilled within an inch of their life most of that active fraction of of, of uh, organic matter is gone the, the humic acid the fulvic acid those materials and George's product I've watched it you know as it's been properly um, oxygenated if you will a higher higher oxygen content feeds those microbes and turns them loose and buddy I tell you what they're looking for every bit of nitrogen they can find and they're going to turn it into something that's really available to those plants and uh, that's the exciting part about this is it's it's not the same old uh, well let's go down to the co-op and see how much nitrogen uh, we can buy discussion it's it's that stuff is little by little you know headed for the uh, for the auction block yeah. Well, that's why, Dan, I spent five solid years from 2005 until 2010 just researching these so-called carbon products, the humix and the fulvics, you know, out in the land of humix out in California, of course, which I know, you know, now much more that Canada is much richer in the resources, but California liked them and have used them for 50 to 60 years when I showed up in 2005. But the difference was, was that their so-called humic acid was a pH of nine, but also unknown to any of them was a negative oxygen content. And that really what I felt was the limiting factor from the benefit from those humic and acids, uh, humic products out there was that that negative oxygen would actually be a detriment to the soil biology, the aerobic bacteria. If you put that humic product with a very negative, sometimes as much as minus 500 uh, on the ORP, if you put that with carbon having such an affinity for being able a strong bond, you're actually going to draw the oxygen away from the seed or from the biologicals and tie it up with that carbon, which in most cases, a lot of those humics were very uh, unrefined, I will say. They have a lot of minerals and a lot of uh, 
uh, unavailable uh, humic properties in those early on humics that they were using predominantly out there, but they did not put them in furrow. They were putting them with their fertility, uh, with their liquid, uh, which they predominantly, all of the fertilizer in California is mostly liquid fertilizer, very little dry out there. But in that instance, what was happening is that they, that they knew that the humic would tie up and slow down germination of seed. And this was proven out with numerous agronomists that I wound up talking to in Utah and Idaho who had already realized that you don't put their humic with potato seed in furrow. Uh, you'll shut down germination. They didn't know why until I showed up this Hannah meter, ORP meter, and showed them the, the negative values of their humic products. So that is where Carbon Works decided to go with something by adding energy, making more hydrogen available for that benefit for the biologicals and for nutrient availability. But then also the oxygen is because we all know the simplicity of it is like Jeremy said earlier, the sugars cannot be respirated by aerobic bacteria without oxygen. I didn't invent that, but I greatly respect it and I honor that because as you and I have talked many times, Dan, the respiration equation is the breaking down of that sugar with oxygen and the biologicals are after the energy, the food in that sugar, but then they release the CO2 in the water. Just the requirements back again to build more sugar. I mean, this is how it works in nature. Uh, they don't have the benefit of all these other things that we've been adding and, or the detriment in, in some respects. But that is what we're about. We're, we really are about delivering the energy and the oxygen along with a very pure carbon so that we can enhance the rest of your agronomy program. We know really what you've put in there. It's chicken, pizza, and Chinese food. Mexican tacos is not just it. Okay. <laughs> uh, will anybody else uh, please well, chime in? Uh, like, like I said, what, once in a while is okay. <laughs> <laughs> Especially at germination. Well, this was guys, really a, also, this was, this was really ahead, an, this was really an excellent. I mean, you're, it's when you don't think about it, this. A lot about this stuff all the time it, it's mind-blowing and and uh, if you almost come back to you forgot what you ever knew and uh, yeah. this, one, one of the other things good. that go oh go ahead sorry no that's all right very good i'm just i was just going to say one of the other uh things to keep in mind too with uh the relationship between carbon and nitrogen is that the soil microbes are are like George said they're always out looking for carbon. They're always looking for a carbon source to eat. Um, but the thing that they're they're lacking oftentimes is the nitrogen to make additional cells to explode the population and then to, to create even more hungry mouths to eat more carbon. And what we do when we put on excessive levels of nitrogen is we provide those microbes with that missing factor that they need to go absolutely bat bleep crazy on the soil carbon. And what happens when they do that? They start to break down the soil organic matter level and the organic matter 
that you may have accumulated through the growing season, you may actually, through the application of excess nitrogen, actually be burning off your soil carbon levels. And so when we apply that nitrogen source, that's one of the reasons why it's so important to mm -hmm. add a carbon source to that nitrogen so that you're not forcing the microbes or encouraging the microbes to scavenge that nice, stable soil organic matter level because they'll tear it apart. I mean, they, they will. It's hard for them to get at, but if that's all they can get at, they will tear it apart. And so providing them with a, a readily available carbon source to use to, to lock up that nitrogen that you've provided them with is so important for, um, you know, maintaining or, or even building um, that soil organic matter level, which has so many more benefits. I mean, other than that nice, beautiful, friable soil. I mean, you, you have water retention, you have nutrient retention. Um, it's yeah, there's, and it smells so nice. It's much like Jeremy alluded to early on when he was explaining the different forms of nitrogen. Urea is the only commercial uh, version of nitrogen available to us as growers that has carbon in it. And most times we don't think about that, but urea is the only one that has carbon in it. And that carbon to nitrogen ratio is so important. And I, this could be another meeting, so I'll save it for later. But there are differences between the bacteria and the fungi of the necessary levels of carbon to nitrogen. The carbon to nitrogen ratio is much higher for fungi than it is for bacteria. And crop oh, absolutely. Bacteria is basically uh, Mother Nature's little piggy banks. They gobble up and absorb and, and, and immobilize uh, free available nutrients. I mean, that's, that's their job. Slurp everything up and stop it from leaching or flashing off and, and incorporate it in some kind of living thing that's also very easy to smash open and, and access nutrients, right? And, and I've had clients do that. I tell them, do whatever you can to get really high sugar content in your plants right off the hop so that they puke out exudates like crazy, create a bacterial flush and absorb, soak up any excess nutrients that are you know, available in the springtime. And then a little bit later on in the season, you know, a month or two months into the season, then go in with a, a, a highly protozoal compost tea, brew, brew a highly protozoal tea, and those apply that, and those protozoal will go in and graze those bacteria and just puke out all the excess nutrients that they don't need, and it's like putting on fertilizer onto your crop. You know, you could do that biologically without actually adding any nutrients and, and just by manipulating the uh, microbial populations in the soil, right? And I, I came across that by accident. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's another little story. Well, and you see, as you do that, you can actually create management programs. So say you wanted to really build huge quantities of microbial activity biologically as bacteria in the fall or even in the late winter, and then you actually use that protozoa at one part during the spring, you could actually create fertility programs as a result, like you said, of the biological management, just like you do livestock and everything else. It's fascinating, but you have to be very cautious that you don't tie them at the wrong times, but you're right. It's, 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 it's just another application of, of another science. Microbial, uh, and, you know, I tried, to, I tried to ask a question, but I don't, 
I don't know how to do it. I turned this mute thing off, and then I went up here. <laughs> you're, you're, we, we can hear you. Well, Kirk, we can hear you, so you can talk right now. No, okay. Uh, on on the anhydrous, which is what I use, I live east of Kansas City in some pretty rich bottom ground. Uh, they sell end zone, and they and they used to have end serve, but they don't like to use end serve because it's so uh, you know corrosive, and so they went to end zone. Well, I've got an agronomist friend that said in end zone is not good. It does not do the job. He said, if you're going to use end zone, just don't use any. Because he said it does not do what insert uses. So I just wondered what, what you guys thought about that. I try to discourage my clients from using anhydrous ammonia. <laughs> well, well, first, first that, off, it's very dangerous. If you have an accident with the equipment, you can, it can kill you. Well, uh, the other thing is, is it tends to fumigate the soil, which kind of is kind of counterproductive to what we're trying to do to encourage yes. biology. So 99.9% of the farmers in this area, that's what they use, anhydrous. Nobody, almost nobody uses uh, liquid. Of course, they have a big dry facility out there that they throw out. But I'm a, a member of the next level program or the the uh, uh, and they've changed their name to Total Acres now, and of course they preach put liquid in the row, not to use anhydrous, but and I've kind of relayed that to my local co-op guy, and of course they probably just <laughs> built a, a a new ten million dollar uh, fertilizer facility and bring in whole unit trains of fertilizer, and they are just selling a huge area. They're making like four or five times the amount of money that they thought they would make when they built this thing. Mm. And, they're, and they're just bringing it in. But that's what everybody does. Everybody. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, exactly. I say something about putting it in a row, they go kind of like, we, we don't do that here. This isn't the program <laughs> that we sell. And this isn't the program that we do. But one other thing I wanted to tell you guys, uh, University of Tennessee did a study for uh, that uh, Randy Dowdy and 68, I believe these figures are correct, 68% of the time, if you spray chemical over your corn about six inches high, which I'm going to say is GDU level of about 450, in a 300 bushel environment, <laughs> You could take as many as 60 bushel off your yield is what the university came up with. So these guys are saying absolutely do not spray chemical over the top of your corn and blow it down in the whirl. If you've got weeds, you've got to use drops and drop it down so it doesn't go in the whirl. And of course, not a spray rig around here has got nobody has drops anymore. Nobody, and nobody uses it. Right. These guys are saying you may have a 300 bushel potential, but when you spray that chemical on it, you can knock it down to 240, and you think, well, 240 corn, that's good, but you had the potential to get 280, 290, whatever. What do you yeah, guys think about that? 
if we want to relate that to everything we've talked about earlier in the evening, one of the reasons why it's so problematic is, well, first and foremost, a lot of pesticides are chelators. They'll actually tie up nutrition inside your plant. They'll actually attack nutrition and tie it up. But one of the key groups of compounds, especially in the very low AI stuff, like you know ounces or, or, or so per acre, they actually inhibit amino acid synthesis, which means it keeps the plant from making amino acids. Now we talked about how important amino acids were just a little while ago. And if you've got a six inch tall corn plant, it's right in the heart of making its ear size. You pull right. down the ammonium nitrogen, what happens to the ear size? Immediately it shrinks. Right. And when you've got less ears per acre, even at 36 or 38,000, you just made less corn. It's, it's right. just, if you understand the science behind it, it's not hard to understand why. We actually have stuff that we go out there to try to help people fix those problems as fast as they can when they realize they've done it. But typically, once you've done it, you've already lost yield. There's no way to counteract it. You can get some help, but you've got to do it immediately. And that's typically not what's going to happen. So, Well, at a 73-year-old farmer that thinks he's getting old enough, he probably ought to quit, but, but it's not ready to quit yet. All this stuff you guys have been talking about, it's like it's almost, and, and the same thing goes on at our next level meetings, our total acre meetings. It's like, it's like, good gosh, is a lot to remember and think about, <laughs> understand. And you don't, you know, you don't really honestly understand it. And there's nobody, and I've told this head CEO, there's nobody in our area like Dan that, and you guys that we can turn to and say, what should we do? What, what's wrong? What's going on here? Yeah. And that's what I tell these next level guys. And, and when, and they like to take uh, daily or weekly tissue tests all mm -hmm. through the season. And this co-op guy says, man, how would we do that with the, all the area that we, you know, even, and I'm thinking, well, you got to hire some people to do this. And, you know, and you're going to make money on this and everything, but they're just not structured. Now, up in Nebraska, I used to run the weed harvest. There was a farmer up there that uh, in uh, in uh, Wallace, Nebraska, west of uh, North Platte, south and west of North Platte. He's a really good farmer. He had about 5,000 acres and got humongous big yields. And he works with a service, you know, that does that for like $10 an acre or whatever. And they recommend how much to water, how much fertilize, what to put on. And, and he does everything they say. And, you know, he's got like a normal year. He's got like a 250, 260 bushel corn yield. But he puts the liquid in the row, in the furrow, and then in the row, two by two. And that, that type thing. <laughs> and our area, like say, 99.9% .9 of the people in our area are using it. <laughs> Yeah. Even if, you know, if, if you had the anhydrous at reduced quantities and you split nitrogen, applied the nitrogen and went to, to a side dress or even a wide drop with uh, liquid nitrogen forms, um, and you can put in boron, sulfur, and some other things, you'd find that there's a really easy way to improve your productivity quotient, even still using the anhydrous as a piece of the puzzle. Um, but you know, just bringing it down a level or two so that it's not being quite so destructive to the soil makes all the difference in the world. And every little bit of building is just that, building something up and you're getting value in that. And 
over time, it really begins to add up. And, you know, we just don't, we don't teach that. It's just, you know, one thing or one thing or nothing. It's just get it, just get it done. The quicker you get it done, the better off we'll all be. That's right. That's what we just say. Yeah. It sounds like they should work with Klaus Schwab. You know, you will eat the bugs, right? <laughs> if there's, if there's nothing else made available and, and they, that's what they tell you, you got to use. Well, then I, I don't know, I guess that's what you got, but you know, so I mean, if, if you want to be able to use another, uh, you know, form of nitrogen, then, then it's, then it's up to you as, as customers to, um, you know, request another form. Awesome. Well, and, I want to thank you guys. And get, and get, get it from somebody else if, if they don't, if they don't want to provide it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there's, you can even put, if you happen to be using any on-seed starters whatsoever, you can put some amino acids, uh, you know, a gallon of amino acids is a huge amount of material. And I think right now in the open market, if you get it for the right people, you can get a gallon of amino nitrogen for, for 12 bucks. And it doesn't sound like much, but you want to see some neat things happen. Uh, oh, watch yeah. what amino acids do when you put them in the furrow with your starter. Oh well, yeah. Party. Yeah. <laughs> Party time. Better know what those amino acids will do before you go with a rate, though, Dan, because some things might need a little bit lesser rate than others. Yep, that's true. But a very, very good combination. I know that personally for myself. Uh, I used those quite a bit the last three years. Very, very helpful to the program. George, do you, uh, you have anything you want to say to kind of wrap things up here for tonight? It's kind of getting late for, for everybody. Understand. And we have we have shared a tremendous amount of great information between everybody, and uh, what a way to start out 2023! Happy New Year to all of you. Um, I think this is a great meeting to uh, to start out with. Great information shared, and a lot for for myself as a farmer to take and put down on paper and start making a good program for this year. And uh, I can't thank Dan, Nadja, Jeremy. Um, enough for, for everything they've shared with us tonight. Thank you for tuning in to today's call presented to you by the Fellowship of Christlike Growers. We hope you can join us again soon.